people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello. Um, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name is Sam. I'm Alex. And today I'm going to let Alex introduce things, uh, as we just discussed. Uh, what are we talking about today, Alex? So today we're interviewing Bjorn Eiler, um, who, I suppose, you're co- are you co-director of the Anti-Fascist um, Monitoring Project, European Anti-Fascist Monitoring Project? Coordinator of the European Anti-Fascist Monitoring the, Project. The, all, all of the yeah, titles are flowing around, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we've, um, you recently just had your launch event. You've got this really nice website up called Anti-Fascist Europe. And I suppose the idea of the, the site is to track far right, the development of far right broadly defined across the whole continent, including the UK. Um, and we've obviously actually interviewed a few of the, uh, the contributors to the, to the website before. If you could just briefly introduce what's, what's the kind of objective behind the website and how do you see it developing um, as, as, you know, as we go forward? So I think the main objective is to reveal what the European far right actually is. Um, We've tended to view it in silos, we tended to view it in regions or or within countries. Um, Reality is, as has become more and more apparent over the last few years, um, that uh, there is an international far right, international nationalists might sound self-contradictory, but the far right movements um, across the continent um, are supporting each other, they're networking, they're collaborating. Um, And this has been particularly apparent in uh, places like um, the annual marches in in Warsaw, where uh, obviously um, people from all over the continent has been showing up. It's also apparent within um, the fascists in suits uh, world um, of um, both media personalities and uh, politicians uh, who are uh, on the further fringes of the far right and who are collaborating among others through the European Parliament and, and other institutions as well as outside of the parliamentary institutions. Um, and so um, the mapping project is really to uh, highlight those interconnections um, across the continent. Um, obviously, they go beyond the continent as well. And so um, it is um, a really kind of helpful resource in revealing the the true nature of the beast and uh, those connections in order to more accurately be able to assess the threat, um, both in terms of threats to democracy and democratic institutions, as well as as threats to um, physical security, physical violence, um, as we're seeing uh, terrorist movements as well uh, grow out of of these environments. And so, Part of the, the problem of the silification as well has been that uh, we've tended to view um, far-right terrorists as domestic terrorists um, and describing them as well as, as lone wolves uh, rather than as part of the larger environment. And, and here we have provided the evidence that there is a network, there is an environment, there is groups and, and collaborations that go far beyond uh, any individual nation, and that uh, terrorism from the far right constitutes international terrorism in, in a similar way to what we've seen been prosecuted from uh, other um, terroristic movements as well. 
So I wonder why you think that you think- the oh, far right has taken on this international structure now. Has it always been international and we just haven't been noticing? Or is there something particular in the history of the far right that means that it has become more international? I think it's always been international. There's always been collaborations and, and constellations uh, internationally between uh, far governments. You know, that is pretty evident if you look uh, back to uh, the historic fascists and, and Nazi movements uh, in Europe as well, leading back to uh, pre-World War II. And so um, it, it's not a new ph- phenomenon. Um especially not within kind of the formal uh, political spheres. Um, what we've been seeing is, however, an increase in capacity to coordinate uh, with, you know, telegram channels perhaps being uh, the most active forms of communication internationally between uh, and among um, far-right actors. Um, it, it's evident that, that communication technologies um, is something that uh, contributes to this um, it's not a new phenomenon, but it's it's one that is um, powered and, and and emboldened by by those technologies that obviously have uh, grown quite a lot over the last uh, decade. Um, do, uh, so you, you the, the scale is quite broad. Like I said before, we've got governmental far right parties, and we've got go- in fact governments as well. You know, people yeah. that are in power. All the way through to these like very extreme, and you're absolutely right to, to to kind of refute the idea that these are lone wolves. Of course, we, if we look at, for example, the Christchurch shooter who travelled extensively in Europe before he committed his acts and had all these links to generation identity, whatever. Um, how do you see these these parts relating to each other? Because on the face of it, if you say take a party that's in power in government, yeah. that is a far right party, how do you think they relate? to the movements and then to these more extreme actors. Um, obviously, they're not acting in coordination with each other in, in, in like a, a, an explicit way, um, but there is still, we think there is still these linkages here. Uh, so obviously there are shared narratives. Um, that's kind of a starting point for, for a lot of it. There's uh, kind of shared rooting in, in xenophobia and uh, particular hatred against uh, people from the Muslim world. Uh, there's um, like all of the fear mongering among, amongst them all, uh, really, that, that kind of is rooted in this, whether it, it comes to you know, the fear of, of migration, etc., that is informing, you know, actual policy um, on how Europe is dealing with, with migrants in the Mediterranean and, and, and um, causing basically mass, mass murder there, as I've, I've stated a couple of places. Um, and so it's all kind of along a spectrum. It all results in physical violence to, to some extent, it results in the, the deaths of people. Um, and, and I don't think you should underestimate kind of that on the basis of whether the people who are uh, behind it are, are living in presidential palaces and wearing suits or whether they are you know, mass shooters like we saw in Christchurch. The, the result on... on human lives is largely the same and so um i kind of see it all as 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 a whole and as um something that all falls within this uh, xenophobic racist um islamophobic etc um space um and a lot of that kind of is also rooted in in of european supremacy white supremacy um 
whatever we want to call it uh, today, but uh, whether um, it's populist politicians uh, proclaiming that they're preserving um, some sort of European identity or whether it's, it's white supremacists who are explicitly racist, they are all basically saying the same thing that there is uh, supremacy of, of Europeans and that there is an existential threat to um, Europeans posed by, by those they define to be not. And so um, this is something that we've seen um, across the continent, across uh, all of those different sectors, uh, but also not something that is unique to necessarily the European far right, uh, although the European far right is, is uh, rooted in, in white supremacy. We see you know, similar tendencies um, within the Hindutva movements in, in India. We see it uh, on the far rights in, in Brazil and in the Philippines. We see it, you know, um, across all of these extremist movements, which is why um, Largely, my work is rooted in the definition of, of violent extremism as the violent denial of diversity, um, which obviously encapsulates um, both uh, the direct violence of terrorists as well as the structural and cultural violence uh, promoted by um, everything from racist media institutions to, um, uh, to uh, parliamentarians um, who are uh, producing what falls within structural violence. Um, in terms of, of legislation that leads to uh, leads to horrific uh, suffering around. Are there specific capacities that we need in order to track transnational networks rather than national networks? Or is it simply a matter of linking up between the different networks that exist in national contexts? Or is there some sort of other capacity that needs to be developed here as well? Uh, I think the main... Uh, main capacity that needs to be uh, developed is, is really collaboration. And, and that is where um, the European project, in, in my view at least, is, is quite unique. That is linking up different movements, different uh, individuals who have been uh, keeping track of foreign movements uh, in their respective countries for, for, for quite some time, and bringing all of that knowledge together and, and creating an easy way in which to share it as well is um, another element. The other uh, aspect I think is important is to uh, link up the conventional uh, fascist or anti-fascist movements uh, and anti-fascist uh, actors with other uh, movements and groups and individuals who are working um, across sectors against racism uh, for uh, social justice, all of these other uh, aspects for an improved world that we're seeing um, and seeing that there is um, interlinkages um, in, in what we're trying to achieve. Uh, that means that we should be collaborating as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I had a question about this, but do you think, I mean, I think you've basically answered it, but how how much is like oh, just plain awareness about these networks and these movements enough? Like how much do we need to link this into actual activism on the ground and activism in different places? And how do we start linking up that that struggle against far right extremism and the far right in general across boundaries? Because I feel like the anti-fascist movement is itself very siloed and it has been for much more than than the far right. Um, I, I as an, you know as an anti-fascist activist, I have never really had many links beyond beyond the borders of the UK before I started doing this podcast and actually actively seeking them. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, and that's that's kind of so what we're trying to how do we do resolve here, right? <laughs> and that's that's part of what we're trying to resolve by by bringing um, so far representatives from uh, thirteen different countries uh, together and, and uh, doing this mapping. We're we're hoping to find ways of, of extending that to be more inclusive of, of uh, other activists who who wants to contribute and, and wants to take part in this as well and, and create. Um, in reality, uh, uh, international network of, of anti-fascists as well. What kind of outputs do you have? So, like, what kinds of things are you producing for the movement? And is it the movement towards which you are directing these outputs, or is it towards publications like newspapers or um, TV journal? Are you interested in that, or what kind of the how are you directing the information you're collecting? Uh, so we have a few kind of main target groups. Uh, obviously, the movements uh, themselves is is um, one of those hardest groups, the, the anti-trust movements uh, across Europe uh, are kind of consumers of, of uh, information we collect. Uh, on the other hand, we are also um, looking to use it to, um, you know, support uh, legislators and, and litigators who are working through the justice systems um, against uh, fascism. We are looking to policymakers who are uh, through uh, the political systems um, and, you know, working along the lines of, of uh, preventing um, the spread of uh, fascism in the far right um, and to conventional media. So we're kind of aiming pretty broad. Um, we're also supporting the academic sectors uh, who are doing work on this. And so um, trying to be somewhat all-encompassing, um, but also speaking very uh, heavily to the, to the anti-fascists. And so... Um, in terms of the outputs themselves, uh, so far it's the mapping itself, which is a continuously updated uh, map that shows um, kind of entities across Europe on a geographic map, but also the networks themselves in a, a network graph and or uh, data explorer uh, and describes um, a range of uh, groups, um, political parties, um, other sorts of entities, um, whether they are um, news networks or uh, such, um, as well as the individuals behind uh, these and also describes the relationships between them. Um, then there are monthly reports coming out from uh, our uh, countries. Um, and so uh, every month there will be uh, updated reports about the recent developments in the countries uh, in terms of what the um, far right has been up to there but also with a specific focus on the international connections behind it and then um, we are publishing you know, news and analysis on a running basis um, of, um, kind of some more uh, insights into to what's going on um, on kind of the main main page there so um, it's it's an, an ambitious project in in, in all respects Do you have a particularly clear sense of how the rise of the far right relates to other broader political tendencies? Is there something that you're kind of interested in, like uh, producing a um, like a, a theory of, or is there is it a much more kind of empirically focused project where you're trying to establish what is kind of physically going on in order then maybe later, like you know, as a secondary output to produce some sort of uh, understanding of how that relates to other broader tendencies in political culture? Uh, so the primary project right now is, is kind of the empirical evidence and, and creating that base of evidence for uh, kind of secondary uh, products uh, is, of course, 
Uh, they were really helpful starting place. Um, I myself and, and others have been working on um, kind of trying to develop the, the, the political theoretical uh, frameworks, etc. Um, but we've been lacking this um, base of, of evidence. And, and what we're trying to do is uh, to empower um, the you know, theory, theory building, as well as the um, manifestation of that in, in practical uh, politics and activism in a base of empiric evidence. You, you mentioned tel- uh, uh, far-right meeting in telegram groups as one example of, of, of differences with, um, in the contemporary moment. Um, how do we factor in like these internet spaces into our analysis of what's going on? Um, it feels like we're oftentimes we're a bit out of step all the time. We're always catching up to the next thing. And I wondered how, is it possible for us to be ahead of, of the developments online and to be able to anticipate some of the stuff that's going on? Because I know when we were doing research for our book about uh, the person's internet far right, you know, we, we were always feeling we're a little bit behind the curve, you know, when we're writing stuff and publishing and stuff. So I wonder how, how can we keep on top of this? Which is, how can we keep on top of the internet? <laughs> it's a hard one. I think that's a kind of fundamental problem and challenge with anti-fascism as such, right? We're tied up to fascism by being against it. And so it will kind of always be a game of catching up as long as you define it within terms of, of anti-fascism. The, the, the question I think you're asking and, and that everyone who views himself as an anti-fascist should be asking is what are we for uh, perhaps more than, than what are we against? Uh, only by doing that we can kind of open our, our vision to how do we get ahead of the game? Um, and so um, like I personally and, and a lot of my work beyond um, this project is, is very much rooted in, in if we are against the violent denial of denial of diversity what we are in favor of is the healthy diverse communities in which we're kind of celebrating uh, the range of different experiences and um, backgrounds and, and ways of life in our, our communities and so um, like that's that's what we're working for and so the question becomes how do we um, use the technologies available uh, how do you we use the societal mechanisms of, of all sorts uh, available in order to achieve that um, as you know the primary goal um, while also at the same time being very clear about uh, being against fascism and so um, you need both, uh, of course, um, but um, you need to also look beyond the anti-fascism and uh, towards um, what uh, we are pro um, as well. We've kind of discussed this as the difference between a, a minimum and a maximum anti-fascism. So the minimum anti-fascism being um, a small group of anti-fascists who specifically target groups of people on the far right who are unproblematically fascists, right? Like the ones who will, you know, do the Zekile or like, you know, and, and, and it's very obviously fascists. And then the maximum anti-fascism is something like the 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 broader attempt to um, uh, undo the conditions in which the far right can thrive in general. It's a transform society in a way that allows for the far right to be, or makes the far right impossible rather yeah. than uh, defeats its kind of symptoms. Like, how do you... Do you think there's a there's a path forward 
within capitalism towards something like a, an, a state in which the environment would be impossible? Or is that just a kind of a, um, like a utopian kind of dream or something? Uh, so when it comes to kind of the question, uh, the question of capitalism is a complicated one. It, it means different things to different people, right? Um, and so um, that's one element of it. I, I personally uh, don't necessarily think that there is a path within capitalism as it exists today. And so I think envisioning beyond that, um, envisioning um, something more um you know, socially oriented is um, a way towards it. Um, what that looks like is uh, kind of for economists to uh, say to some extent, but um, certainly societies in which um, we as individuals collaborate better, um, work together as uh, communities um, rather than as corporations is uh, part of the vision, right? And uh, part of, of what we need to work towards in order to build a truly kind of anti-fascist uh, future communities. We, in, in, in some of our recent writings, we've been, we've been thinking about the climate crisis and how that, as a, a general societal stressor, um, yeah. what consequence that will have with the far right. It seems like the climate crisis is going to make things a lot worse if it's ever going to get better. Is it possible for us to link up um, activism over the, uh, over the climate and the global heating um, with anti-fascism, how should we do that? Because I feel like there's a convergence here that's only going to get more and more explicit. I think there is a convergence and we're, we're kind of seeing both problematic and positive sides of that. We're seeing kind of an increase in, in eco-fascism that is uh, closely tied to the environmentalist movements to, in some places, at the same time, we're seeing um, kind of ecological movements uh, on the leftist and anti-fascist side of things as well. And so, uh, you know, um, the question is really kind of how do we um, empower leftists, uh, ecologists, um, while at the same time, you know, showing the futility of the eco-fascist calls to some extent. Um, what we're already seeing is also, um, you know, wars fought on uh, the basis of um, of ecology, of, of environmentalism mm -hmm. to a large extent. Environmental factors has been a part mm -hmm. of, um, of mm -hmm. all we've been seeing for, for, for quite some time, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be the migration crisis of, of, kind of the 2015, 16, um, or whether it be um, other things. And so uh, understanding the ecology of uh, conflicts um, is part of understanding how um, we must weave together um, both the anti-fascism and and the um, and the environmentalism um, in, in different ways in order to create again communities that are healthy for people to to live in um, and where we can live uh, live peacefully and, and with our, our diverse identities and so. Um, yeah, um, it, it's more about the analytical framework and, and how we uh, weave that together. But I, I would say you can't truly be anti-fascist without also being environmentally minded, because at the end of the day, we, we, we live in this world and need to take care of our environment in order to be able to live in good communities as well, which ultimately is our goal. So, yeah. 
the sense in which like the the fascist project since its inception in the uh you know the, the late 19th century or something depending on where exactly you want to put it um has been a kind of a totalizing project that is always finding new more dimensions which can become which which it tries to kind of make submit to its its uh its kind of will so um if you think about the expansion of uh the reactionary concern from you know kind of voting in politics towards labor legislation and then ultimately down towards things that concern fascists today like um microplastics uh and, and these kind of things and uh um seed oils and so on right it's just um uh fascism seems to have this kind of tendency towards expanding and expanding and expanding and expanding the realm of things that it wants to submit to its will and i guess maybe there's a kind of a, a counter anti-fascist tendency towards that that is quite you know, useful to to empower. I'm just rephrasing what you've already said. So, um, but uh, Alex, you've got a question. Your question is me as a dogs. Uh, it was always it always happens one time. It's all good. Um, yeah. You you recently wrote a, an article for the Anti-Fascist Europe website about on Holocaust Memorial Day, and you quoted uh, Ban Ki Moon, who said we must apply the lessons of the Holocaust to today's world. What do you take from this? Um, what do you take from uh, how do we apply the, the the lessons of the Holocaust to today's world? Well, um, there's been tendency to view the Holocaust as something that happened in a, in a specific era of time, right? Um, and that is problematic because we've seen genocides happen since then, we're seeing genocides happening today. Um, at the same time, we also tend to view uh, largely the anti-Semitism that fueled the Holocaust as uh, something that's from a historically bygone era, um, while we still see that anti-Semitism is enormously present uh, today um, in everything really from, you know, um, weird jokes on sitcoms uh, to uh, within the uh, QAnon conspiracy theories and anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, etc. And so, um, you know, understanding the wider um, wider landscape of um, conspiracy theories of, of hate that led to the Holocaust and seeing how uh, a lot of it is still uh, present in today's society, both as a, as a direct inheritance of, of what existed prior to the Holocaust, but also as things that have been evolving since then, um, I think it's important in order to avoid it happening again. Um, further, the you know, lesson of um, the Holocaust being that the Holocaust didn't start with the Holocaust. Uh, it started with um, anti-Semitism, it started with, with cultural hatred against Jews, it started with legislation against uh, minorities, etc. Is something that we must keep in mind as we're as we're kind of analyzing today's world and see that um, there is de facto policy that is uh, uh, following along very similar lines. Um, at the same time, there's also uh, cultural narratives and social narratives that are following along um, very similar lines and uh, trying to uh, you know do everything from banning books uh, to um, to outright uh, stating hatred to enforcing that hatred through both um, the 
misuse of the arms of law enforcement to uh, the misuse of legislation itself. Um, all of that makes up a picture where um, we need to stop viewing uh, it as unimaginable that something like the Holocaust would happen today in, in Europe as well to um, a place where we are assessing that as a, as a possible reality and then do everything in our power to avoid going down that path again. I think there's also there's a tendency to kind of particularize the hatred uh, that, that the in the Nazi party to that particular party and that particular movement without seeing the wider cultural hatreds that were, were yeah. going on at the time as well. And then to follow from that, applying that to today, you know, people often like to silo, you know, Islamophobia or anti-Semitism, bigotry, uh, oppression into these designated bad actors within societies and then kind of absolve kind of liberal centrism of its kind of responsibilities and its its bigotries and its Islamophobia. And, and then you get kind of unquestioned the kind of fortress Europe kind of mentality in which people are dying in the Mediterranean, people are stuck in, in the cold in Belarus trying to get into Poland and things like this. Yeah. And these kind of things are, are, are seen as like the kind of normal workings of the liberal democratic order. Yeah, and I think like that feeds into Arndt's view on banality of it all uh, to some extent. Like the, we are all kind of contributing to the banality of the evil that is happening at, at this point, you know, far away and, and not necessarily with our direct uh, participation, but also without our direct intervention. And so um, the question really is kind of of um, the liberal-minded centrists, um, like where is the kind of responsible action? And part of what we as anti-fascists must do is, of course, point to this and say we we all have a responsibility, and we all have to step up, and we all have to um, object and um, find ways of of stopping this passive passive participation in um, these horrendous things that are happening. We, we often talk about this on the show as a kind of a tension between um, anti-fascism as a kind of a demonology, right? That kind of studies people who are uh, irreversibly evil, the Nazis and so on, and um, a much more broad sense of kind of complicity that, as you're describing is kind of almost passive in some sense. I think it's a, I think I don't have anything to say about it. I just think it's a really crucial tension in, in anti-fascism. And I don't think that we can resolve it one way or the other. We can't say we're just concerned with the most kind of extreme elements or we, we are concerned with everything bad that happens. And one is exhausting. The other one is, uh, is kind of naive in some sense. There's a real kind of you know, problem here, I think. Yeah, and I think this is it's kind of reflective of one of the issues with the inclusivity of anti-fascism, right? Like we tend to, like anti-fascism tends to be a fairly small kind of segment of society. At the same time, we're seeing large movements uh, in the UK. There's been you know, the, the evolution of the Black Lives Matter movements tying into the um, sculptures uh, movements of different sorts uh, last year, different social justice movements, etc. that goes beyond what we're con uh, conventionally viewing as the anti-fascist movement, but still has an anti-fascist agenda. And so um, being inclusive of those movements and what we're viewing as anti-fascism, I think, might be um, kind of a really helpful 
uh, step towards um, also being more inclusive of what we are looking at as the issues, right? Um, of seeing the uh, kind of social justice elements of um, what needs to be achieved in order to um, you know, prevent uh, some of the you know, passive centrists uh, participation in uh, some of the stuff. And so, um, yeah, being being more inviting uh, and inclusive uh, in both the term anti-fascism and in our work as anti-fascists is really uh, a call to action there. I'd like to move on to the to the question of radicalization, radicalization towards the far right, and it's something you've talked about extensively over much of your adult life. Yeah. Um, uh, when I, it's a really troubling one for me. I, I think of someone like Darren Darren Osborne in the in the UK who radicalized extremely quickly within a month after seeing some very mainstream drama on the BBC to the point where he drove a, drove his car into a crowd outside a mosque in Finsbury Park, and I wondered. Um, what are your thoughts on how we can make interventions uh, in, to make that 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 particular radicalization less that kind of stuff less likely to happen? How do we disrupt these processes? Because oftentimes they happen quite quickly, and then of course in other cases we have, some, like the Christchurch shooter who have planned his attacks over over a great deal of time and and, and travelled extensively, etc. So how do we how do we make interventions in communities and in I suppose wider society in order to stop this kind of thing? from uh, happening? So there's, as you kind of allude to, there are different levels of intervention. Um, in, in my mind, there's the interventions that could have taken place against uh, people like the, the Christchurch shooter and Anders Bering Breivik in Norway and, and others who have for years been kind of radical and planning their acts and, and um, to some extent participating in the movements as well. Um, that's where you know, there are um, various uh, groups, et cetera, that focus on kind of the one-to-one -one methodology of intervention against, uh, against uh, radicalized individuals. And then there's um, the people who are quickly radicalized um, into committing acts of, of terrorism like in Finsbury Park. Um, that are much harder to capture um, on kind of a one-to-one -one basis, um, and um, and I don't think it's necessarily the the best medicine either. Um, I think what we're we're looking at uh, and and what we should be doing is focusing on kind of uh, um, preventative structures across society like we should look at what within our cultures what within um, our societies is that drives people down those paths of radicalization in the first place and then you know uh, already there uh, start the process of, of vaccination against radicalization um, if you like as kind of a public health uh, metaphor um, slash reality there and so um yeah, it needs to start earlier. It needs to start at the, at the whole society level. And then we need to also understand what is happening at a neighborhood level, what is happening at the street level. Um, what are um, the problems of people within certain neighborhoods and areas? Um, like as we've seen with uh, radicalization into Islamist extremism, um, a lot of people uh, who are... Uh, 
kind of going off to or were joining uh, groups like ISIS came from the same neighborhoods and came from the same areas. We're seeing similar things on the far right. Um, and we need to understand what are kind of the driving factors within those areas and how do we um, adjust for those uh, problems that are leading uh, people down the paths of radicalization in the first place. And so um, I'm much more on the preventative side than on the interventionist uh, side, if you like. Um, at the same time, I, I do certainly see the value of uh, interventions where they are uh, successful with people who have been um, in movements for a long time, who have been um, going down paths towards uh, uh, committing horrendous acts of violence as well. And so, um, yeah, don't know if that answered your question, but at least it's some ramblings along the lines of it. I, I just want to say that I think the the vaccination metaphor for uh, de-radicalization is, is a great one. And uh, it was it was going to be in our book, but then it was taken out of our book because of Alex insisted that we couldn't use public health metaphors in discussing anti-fascism. He was wrong. And I just want to, on the record, <laughs> that public health is a really good use for a metaphor for anti-fascism. Yeah. Anyway, 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 that's just a personal, a personal beef. Go on, Alex. Damn. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> Um, Sorry, I, I wanted to. I wanted to have a. I have a follow-up question about kind of. Uh, I suppose state, um, state and policing interventions into this kind of sphere because oftentimes, like I would classify myself as a radical. Um, I think the world, as it currently stands, requires a radical changes for it to yeah. be better. And I wondered. How, uh, this is also a difficult one, um, but how do you kind of view? How do you, how effective do you think these kind of almost counter terror interventions from the state are in 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 taking people away from the far right? It's something I'm I'm pretty opposed to policing and counter terror policing. Yeah. Uh, I accept it as a fact of our world. I'm not going to like say it doesn't exist, but I, it's a really difficult for me, one for me to think through as well because at the moment, oftentimes the only intervention is, for example, in the UK, prevent, which has yeah. so many problems with. Um, taking up, I mean, I don't really have to go into it, but yeah. I think we've all heard the horror stories of prevent for the better part of the last decade at least. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of uh, issues there. Um, and, and there's a lot of issues with statism, with monopolization of violence, et cetera, that you know, from the radical perspective is, is deeply problematic with the existence of states in the first place, you know, like I can go down plenty of rabbit holes there about uh, about all of the problems at the same time. Uh, as you're saying, um, we we live in this world and kind of must accept it as as part of the reality, regardless. Um, I think to some extent um, there are individuals within groups like the police that can be helpful in um, prevention and in de-radicalization. At the same time, I think the institution as a whole is problematic and there, there's been way more discourse about kind of how the institutions are problematic uh, over the last couple of years than there's really been before, which is a, is a good step in the right direction in the first place, right? Um, I think genuine police reform would be really helpful in, in um, enhancing um, and the, the good things about the preventative side of things. And, and um, I think going from a model of crime, um, like intervention to crime prevention is um, 
one direction in which we've seen uh, kind of efforts like community policing, et cetera, been call, going in for, for some time. There's been uh, work in particular um, with uh, kind of hooligan movements, et cetera, um, where some of the work of, of uh, police officers has been, been valuable. Um, at the same time, I don't think the state um, or uh, law enforcement should um, have the monopoly on uh, prevention uh, nor on um, necessarily intervention. And so um, civil society groups, um, individuals, uh, movements um, also have a large role to play in um, a larger counterterrorism landscape in particular from this preventative uh, approach, right? Um, and that's kind of really where, where I live and, and do my work. Um, in, in terms of trying to and enhance that. Uh, and at the same time, um, we must recognize that uh, fascists are uh, putting out on both police uniforms and putting on uh, suits and ties and going into parliaments and, and uh, to a large extent, uh, anti-fascists must do that as well and actively stand up in those spaces and be anti-fascists. Um, and I think that's uh, something that we need to see more of uh, happening in the time to come. We can't just stand on the outside and shout in and be uh, rebellious. Um, and, uh, and in opposition, we also need to um, enter the spaces of um, the counterterrorism world, of the uh, kind of CVE complex, uh, et cetera, uh, in order to shape that in a direction where it isn't reinforcing the issues that are leading to um, fascism in the first place, isn't reinforcing the stereotypes that uh, the far right thrives upon, et cetera, as we've seen be problematic with a lot of those groups. Uh, and a lot of that work uh, so far, we need to uh, take, um, take up space in those places and uh, make sure that um, uh, uh, anti-fascist agenda is, is part of the uh, work as well. Speaking of which, how does the uh, the work of the monitoring network like afford that? How does it um, produce, how does it allow for those things to happen? How does its information get moved towards them and so on? Like, how do you see the, the, the work of the network in, interacting with that? Can you expand on that question? Yeah, so, uh, um, so we talked about like how the, how the network would, um, push information towards uh, various groups of people. Yeah. Um, do you see that as allowing for, maybe, maybe it's kind of obvious, like, yes is the answer. Do you yeah. see that as allowing for civil society kind of institutions to uh, interact with, with, with the far right? And like, are, are you, do you have, I, I guess you can't give us any specifics about what exactly you have in mind there. So maybe it's a dud question. Maybe it doesn't make any sense. Well, Alex, maybe you could try and ask it. <laughs> Okay, he's not going to ask it. <laughs> That's right. fair enough. No, so I, I think like the work of the anti-fascist monitoring project in itself um, is is publicly available and hopefully useful to um, to everyone who uh, wants to to combat fascism, right? Um, whether those are within you know, formal political spaces or whether they are in um, law enforcement litigation, um, etc., or whether they are um, on the on the rebellious street level activist side of things. Um, I think um, like it, it's hopefully a useful resource to all of them. The work that goes beyond that is gonna 
all of the other stuff, right? Where um, two people like me who tend to contribute in uh, you know, formal policy making process and spaces like that as well, having that data and having uh, the analysis that exists within the fascist uh, Europe network available becomes a very, very useful tool in demonstrating why the things that I'm pushing for are so needed within the formal political spaces, etc. And um, hopefully other people like myself and, and the other you know, participants in the network are able to take um, take the data, take the analysis, take the uh, monthly reports, take the network graphs and, and everything and use it as an evidence base in uh, promoting um, you know, anti-fascist agendas within all of these spaces. Um, and so, again, we're kind of down to, it is a primary base of uh, evidence of, of research and work. And then on top of that um, is where we build um, you know, the, the secondary work, if that makes sense. It does. Um, That's great. Thank you. We've... Uh... <laughs> We've, uh, we've, we've run out of questions. Um, thank you so much. Sam, do you have any final thoughts or anything? No, my thoughts are becoming so bad that I, uh, I should obviously stop. Uh, I have no more, no more thoughts about anything. Do you have anything you'd uh, like to plug? The, the website's antifascist-europe.org, I believe. Yes. Have you so, got anything else you want to get in there? Any projects you've got going on? Everyone should visit the, the website, obviously, and check out the... the work there, uh, some of it stems from my work at uh, the Khalifa Eiler Institute, khalifaeiler.org, um, and um, and uh, the work that we've been putting into uh, what's called the hate map there, um, which initially started off ma mapping uh, kind of incidents and, and attacks around, uh, around the world, and uh, we're keeping uh, that going to some extent and figuring out kind of the path of that forwards along with anti-fascist Europe, but it also goes beyond Europe and looking uh, in particular to things that have been going on in the US and Australia and New Zealand uh, that also make up part of uh, the larger tapestry of, of the far right, as well as a whole bunch of, of other efforts, um, which also includes working with the tech sector, et cetera. So, so check out both the work of Antifascist Europe, uh, of the Khalifa Eiler Institute, and uh, of course, of uh, the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation as well, that's uh, supporting the uh, Antifascist Europe project. And for us, um, by the time this episode comes out, our second book, the Rise of Ecofascism will be released from Polity Press. You can buy it anywhere in Europe and it'll come out in America in uh, sometime in, uh, then. Um, okay, thank you very much. Great. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can go over to Patreon where we now have a whole bunch of more premium episodes and essays and other things like that. We're also starting a book club for people who want to get more into this stuff you can read along with us we'll talk about it we'll have regular zoom calls it'll be great fun and on the higher tier we'll even send you a copy of our two books when they drop that's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what all the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project and thanks a lot for listening again and i'll see you very soon silver threads still walking still waking is co-hosted by me carla bergman and me eleanor goldfield 
This is where we interview long-term organizers and radicals about their watershed moments, what they've learned along the way, and how they maintain their hope on this path. Dreaming and building emergent worlds for a present and future anchored in justice and freedom for all. Because there are forks in the road, but they all lead us home to the fight, to the build. 12 rules. <laughs> Yeah,